Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. I want to confirm our, our timing. When is the end of the talk? 735. 740? 735. 735. Yeah, I, haven't. I wanted it to be 740. <laughs> I'll do my best. Uh, I think um, we sent out a, a handout, which you might want to have access to, but you don't have to have it. Um, which has to do with three different translations of what I call the pesky section in the middle, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm going to refer to a little bit, and then make some additional comments about um, uh, what he's talking about, which we've begun, and then also share, as Peg has done, some of my own writing, uh, like you began yesterday, not so much explicitly avowed, but a little bit more. Um, way-seeking, which came before this, and some of which you may have seen before in other places, but um, I wanted to share it um, as a way to continue what we're doing and to, to share some personal things as well as just some of the teachings. So um, <clears throat> I'm just going to read, for example, the, the the one that we are familiar with, that middle section in Troy's and she's Bodhisattva Bound, um, who can be ungrateful or not respectful to senseless things, not to speak of humans, even though they may be a fool, be warm and compassionate toward them. If by any chance they should turn against us, become sworn enemies and persecute us. We should sincerely bow down with humble language and irreverent understanding but they are the merciful messengers of the awakened one. We use devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies, produced and accumulated upon ourselves our own egoistic delusion and attachment throughout countless cycles of space and time. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? It's quite a bit in there. And I'll say up front, I think that what part of what Tori Zinji is doing and many other teachers have done, especially some of the older teachers and contemporary teachers who serious about the matter. They want to be warm and compassionate because their aspiration to assist you in awakening is so deep. But that means they have to say, like, make exaggerated statements sometimes and push things because it's, it's so difficult for us sometimes to take the steps that are required that sometimes they, they, it's like, okay, let's take it to the edge. And I think that's part of what he's doing. Because um, we also have to remember Practicing deeply is not necessarily going to make things more nice or pleasant. Mm -hmm. You know, my line that I've said many times, practice doesn't necessarily make your life more pleasant, it makes it possible. Um, and so sometimes worst case scenario, the teacher will bring up as a way of saying, guess what? This is applicable everywhere. There's no place it's not applicable. So I think that's part of what he's doing here. Um, 
the Zen community of Oregon, it goes, um, if it is so, even with inanimate objects, how much more should we be kind and merciful towards human beings, <laughs> even those who are foolish on this interesting day in our country? <laughs> Though they become our sworn enemies, reviling and persecuting us, we should regard them as bodhisattva manifestations who, in their great compassion, are employing skillful means to help emancipate us from the twisted karma we have produced over countless cultists who are biased, self-centered views. So another one. And then finally, just to get these out of the way, in the Diamond Sangha, it gets even worse. <laughs> All the more we can be especially sympathetic and affectionate with foolish people, particularly with someone who becomes a sworn enemy and persecutes us with abusive language. That very abuse conveys the Buddha's boundless loving kindness. That's a tough one to swallow, huh? Uh, it is a compassionate device to liberate us entirely from the mean-spirited delusions we have built up with our wrongful conduct from the beginningless past, with our open response to such abuse, we completely relinquish ourselves, and the most profound and pure faith arises. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but if you go back at each one of them, for example, the one that we normally chant, if you just, for example, leave out the line, if by any chance they should turn against us or become sworn enemies and persecute us, the first part says, be grateful to difficult folks, we should sincerely bow down with humble language that they're the merciful messengers. So you take the abuse part out. I'm not saying that's what we should do. I'm saying you can. It's a little easier to swallow, take a step. In the Zen community of Oregon, if you take out the though they become our sworn enemies, reviling and persecuting us, they say, be kind of foolish people. We should regard them as bodhisattva manifestations. In which they're probes. They're they're calling for, for things for. And the Diamond Sangha, once again, you take out the uh, sworn enemies, persecuting, especially with abusive language. That very abuse conveys. I think that very abuse calls forward everything that doesn't feel like good in nature and asks us to make the turn. And later it says, um, with our open response to such abuse, there's a little key there. It can, Ram Dass used to say, you know, our, our, the reason for practice is to keep our heart open in hell. It was good, those punchy statements. And isn't that how things have seemed in the last couple of years, in, in many ways? So I just wanted to play with this a little bit and also to point to what I think is going on here, because the Bodhisattva vow takes us obviously beyond our preferences beyond practicing so we have better experiences. It offers us a chance to have a new relationship with all experience, all, all experience. It doesn't change the world from a bad world to a good world. We just have this world and how are we going to meet it? And the vow grounds us in this revolutionary possibility. It's pretty revolutionary as we acknowledge this larger life that we're actually part of from the beginning, no matter how we feel or we think about it. Because life is so awesome, completely inconceivable in many ways. So we need something like a vow, because that's the only thing large enough to help us meet this awesome life. <clears throat> all the enormous challenges, all the enormous beauty, because it is beautiful and terrifying, both. 
It's compassionate and it's destructive. You know, Buddhism first emerged in uh, Indian culture and, and the Hindu tradition, really. And you have things like Kali, you know, it's like she's destroying and creating constantly. And it's in the background because that seems to be the reality. But it, practice is going to help us stand in the fullness with less reactivity. It's what you know, Stephen Batchelor calls nirvanic moments. A moment in which you're not caught in reactivity. You don't end up in nirvana. You have nirvanic moments. And we stumble and we struggle, or at least I do. And now is our North Star. It says, oh, that's how I orient myself. That's how we get back home. Dogen said, ordinary people are pulled by karma, bodhisattvas are led by vow. So what is our practice going to be? <clears throat> we were talking about this for a moment about maybe Tori Zinchi is just wrong. <laughs> you know, that part of this that comes up, it's like, dude, this is not really hard. Um, maybe abuse and persecution aren't necessary Dharma gates <laughs> any more than suffering and poverty are prerequisites for artistic creativity. You know how these strange things are held? But if difficulties come, we're going to have to work with them. If wonderful things come, we're going to have to work with them. And the modern world certainly offers us many opportunities to work with both. These violent things are not what we typically think of as the Buddha's loving kindness. You know that last version. Uh, and the intention to uh, light up, to illuminate stuck places in relationships and habitual reactivity is pretty challenging and sometimes it's unpleasant you know those uh, in, in practice but just like the hitting and shouting and all that stuff the old guys did you know mostly guys these are not methods that we use and they're not methods that we condone yet something is being shown to us and asked of us in those old things it's just not our way uh, in the form of encouragement, uh, even, even here, the Dharma shamans in those, those ways. And you'll also notice that in your handout, I offered this uh, three-part thing that Sherry Huber is kind of well-known for, the Thinkings deliberation about pay attention to everything, don't believe anything, don't take anything personally. It's a nice little <coughs> uh, huge thing. You know, pay attention to everything, especially what's triggering. Especially the mean people, foolish people, who are going to persecute you. And make sure you don't miss the loving ones, because that's what's nourishing you, so you can do the other. Believe nothing. It doesn't mean to push everything away. Just don't settle onto any one perspective and think that's it. Because as soon as you do, you turn off all the others. And that's what you see in our country, of course. Don't take anything personally. That's the fun one, huh? Don't take on anything that's projected onto you or that you make up about yourself and think that that's wholly true. So how does this look if we're to practice these things, to pay attention, to not get caught in belief, to do your best not to take things personally? Here's a little story. It's not 
perfection. It's, and I have to give you a little orientation. For those of you online, you may not know this, but here in Austin, at the corner of the West Access Road to I-35 in Cesar Chavez, there's Palm School on the north corner, and there's IHOP on the south corner. It's, that used to be East Avenue, and where the IHOP is was East Avenue Baptist Church. That was my grandfather's church in the 40s. And then they went to Oklahoma. He came back when he retired, but he helped that church to close because it had gotten old. And that was in the early 60s when I was young. So that's where we start. Okay. I remember sitting in the front pew of East Avenue Baptist Church on Sunday morning as a young boy watching my grandfather preach. And those of you that have, um, especially a Texas Protestant background, will get some of this. I know not everybody has that, but I have an amen from Cassie. So. <laughs> when he finished, it was time for the invitation. He would ask us to join in singing the old hymn, Just As I Am. Mm -hmm. The church was too old, too small, and too poor to have a minister of music, so he would just point us to the right page in the hymnal, and we would sing along as he spoke during the chorus to those in the congregation who were ripe for conversion. I was a serious little boy, having grown up in the Southern Baptist Church, and I was always moved by that song and the earnest request of my grandfather or any preacher was suggesting that there was a life-saving opportunity, the pinnacle of spiritual transformation to come forward and profess your faith in Jesus Christ and thus be assured of salvation. So part of this has to do with my own resolution about this stuff. The music was emotional and solemn. For those of you who don't know some of the first words, just as I am without one plea that that thy blood was shed for me. Thus thou biddest Come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The invitation touched that place in me, and I'm sure in many others, that longed to be called into a relationship in which you could be fully seen, completely accepted, and infinitely loved. Only God was capable of that, we were told, and if we were willing to come to him just as I am, all would be well. This was all fine and good during the Sunday morning service, but in Sunday school the very next week, this story mysteriously changed. Apparently, I wasn't okay just as I am. In fact, it was probably a good idea that I should actually offer a plea to be forgiven for who I was. I could come home, as the song said, but there were rules in this house, and entry into the kingdom had a big price. The truth slowly dawned. Being seen was a bit risky. Being accepted was definitely going to be conditional. And being loved just as I am finally seemed impossible. After all, I knew I was different. I was gay. I was a really good little boy. I did what I was told. I was polite and smart. I had my perfect attendance in Sunday school pens. I was a royal ambassador. I memorized the 23rd Psalm and repeated it in my father's Sunday school class when I was five years old. I was baptized when I was six. I knew what it took to make it in this world of religion and it meant following the rules and pleasing the big people. I knew I could do that and I was good at it. The only trouble was 
had to maintain certain secrets in order to keep it up. Of course, I also noticed that most of the other people in church had their secrets too, but one of the rules we shared was not to notice. It became clear that looking good was sometimes more important than being good. So I became good at that. Over time, the hidden parts grew too large, the pleasing became too much of a burden, and the disconnection too great. I, I left the church, but just as I am didn't leave me. It kept working on me. I became a psychologist and practiced as a psychotherapist. I dedicated my life to the relief of suffering in others. And in particular, I was devoted to helping people find a way to accept themselves just exactly as they were. If change was possible, this was the starting place. I studied, I trained, I practiced. I found my place in the field of behavioral medicine with a specialty in cancer care, working in hospitals and cancer treatment centers around the country. These were real life-saving opportunities, or at least life-affirming and healing opportunities. But one thing was missing, the spiritual path. Psychology only went so far, and these patients were facing much more than passing anxieties or depression. They were not just struggling with their marriages or fighting with their children. These people were facing the possibility of a foreshortened life, and they were living with pain and suffering that was very apparent. I needed spiritual help in my own life and new tools to support my patients. I also needed a break. Working cancer can be demanding, so I finally took a vacation to Hawaii, hiking the beautiful and rugged Nepali Trail on the north coast of Kauai with a friend. Along with the needed supplies to sustain us on our trek, I took a copy of the Dhammapada, one of the earliest texts of the Buddhist collective teachings. The 11-mile hike along the narrow trail to our campsite was demanding, but the scenery was unbelievably inspiring. The combination of fear and awe let, left me in a rare state as I finally sat on the remote beach in the Kalawa Valley, reading the unfamiliar words of this ancient Eastern teacher. Ordinary life had dropped away as I traversed the switchbacks along the hanging valleys of the jagged coast. As I walked, I was held up by the vast sky above me, called forward by the seemingly endless ocean reaching out to the horizon. Something true was being revealed to me in the raw power of nature, and more subtly on the pages of the slim volume I carried in my backpack. Here I was, just as I am, without much to prop me up or fall back on, no one to impress and nothing to hide. I stood naked under the waterfall to take my shower, rested in the shade of the rainforest canopy to eat my meals, and took walks along the beach with the shorebirds scurrying along beside me as my companions. When I returned, I began to slowly find my way along a new spiritual path. This landscape was characterized by mindful awareness, profound acceptance, and deep gratitude for all that is. I studied and learned all I could about the Buddhist teachings. I came to see that this his only concern was the cause of suffering and the relief of suffering he saw around him. That was what I was interested in, what my patients needed, relief from suffering. I meditated, went to retreats. I found a mature teacher to guide me and friends to accompany me along the path. I started a meditation group, founded a Zen center, was ordained as a priest, spent time in training monasteries and practice in Japan. Eventually, I allowed a good bit of the ancient Asian forms of practice to fall away. Now I teach the same freedom from suffering, just as I am, in this body, in this time, in this culture, under these circumstances, right here in Austin. And along the way, 
I turned back to the actual teachings of Jesus and discovered that what the young boy could not have seen, that this freedom was what the Jesus story had been about all along. I now understand that the yearning to respond to this call, to be seen, to be accepted, to be loved unconditionally, was a universal desire, not a Christian or Buddhist one. Everyone wants to be saved, no matter what their spiritual tradition, saved from a disconnected life that's not their own. What was touched as I sat singing that song of invitation was the soft spot in all of us. And it was this tender place that Jesus and Buddha had recognized and met with their lives. They responded as compassionate healers and wise teachers, and their kindness has made a profound difference in the world over the past two millennia. As a result, I now have the opportunity to live a life of truth, just as I am, held in that radiant light of wise care that these great teachers demonstrated in their lives. And you have that same opportunity, just as you are. made it under the water. <laughs> <laughs>